Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. You could say a career in advertising was foreshadowed in Anthony Hello's childhood. After all, two of his influences were fictional advertising executives. Angela Bauer from Who's the Boss, and Darren Stevens from Bewitched. Anthony was born, raised, and educated in Fredericton, New Brunswick. He moved to Toronto after graduating from the University of New Brunswick, landing an entry-level role working on the Labatt account at Echo Advertising. Anthony moved into senior roles at The Hive, Mediacom, and Ben Simon Byrne. During this period, his career became increasingly focused on content marketing. Anthony married an American, and he and his husband decided to settle in New York City where his career continued with senior-level roles at UM Worldwide and the media brand's content studio. But in his spare time, Anthony is also a podcaster. He's the producer and host of All the Boys, a podcast dedicated to telling the historical stories of gay men arrested on so-called morals charges, who were then outed in the press for their sexuality. All the Boys is available wherever you get your podcasts. I find myself now among the great layoff of 2023 in the marketing industry. Um, so I am polishing up the resume and also uh, working independently with entrepreneurs to help them with their marketing, to keep my brain sharp and my uh, enthusiasm up. Anthony, thank you so much for stopping by today. You and I go way back, even though we haven't spoken in a number of years, we did work together. I want to say going back to like, I think it was 2010. So it's wonderful to catch up to you in this environment. As always, we go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I am from Fredericton, New Brunswick, on the East Coast. Oh, Atlantic Canada. Okay, so tell Atlantic us a little. Canada. I think you're probably my very first guest from Atlantic Canada. I'm probably doing an injustice to someone because I can't remember, but I, I, no, sorry, you're my second guest from Atlantic Canada. Wait, or, who's the first? Oh, geez, I'd have to go back and think about it. I, he's living in, in Prince Edward Island right now. I'd have to go back and look at who it was. It was going back more than a year ago, but I can't remember if he was born in Ottawa and is in Atlantic Canada now, or he was born in Atlantic Canada, moved with his family to Ottawa, and then relocated back to PEI. But anyways. <laughs> the, the, the Atlantic Canada to Ottawa migration uh, is a frequent one. Is it really? Because right I now. Think so. Okay, so right now, let's just tell everyone, you're based in New York City, and I don't know how familiar you are with the cost of living and housing crisis and just affordability crisis in Canada right now, but I got to tell you, people are making beelines to Atlantic Canada right now from Ontario. Like, they're getting out of Dodge. Well, I will say lucky them. It is an incredible place to live, um, to enjoy nature, to, you know, see friends and family, uh, and to find a balance in life. Growing up, of course, I didn't think any of that um, was exciting. Uh, none of it excited me because I had, you know, grand aspirations and and grew up knowing that, um, 
as a gay person, I, I would most likely want to leave uh, and make the the move to a big city. Um, but now, given how the world has changed, become much more accepting um, post COVID, or at least where we are currently in the COVID pandemic, people can work from everywhere. So I hope Atlantic Canada has uh, a resurgence or a surgence, if you will, that's a word, um, because it truly is a fantastic place to live. You hinted on something there about being a gay boy in Atlantic Canada and Fredericton. So give us a bit more insight into what life was like growing up for you there. This is such an interesting question. I think about it a lot. Uh, I'm I'm active in my personal life now. I'm 43 years old and, and I'm active in the the pursuit of improving rights and, you know, just quality of life for LGBTQ plus people. And like I said, I'm, I'm 43. I'm, I'm old, but not that old. And I remember a time when, you know, when I graduated from Fredericton high school in 1998, there was not one out kid in my graduating class, not one. And the graduating class consisted of about 700 of us. So now you have this situation where, thankfully, in many places, um, certainly in Canada, fewer in the United States, kids can come out younger and they can start that process younger. And that excites me because it means they can get started with the lives that they want to live younger and also, by the way, find love and relationship and community and companionship in the city in which they grew up if that's what they want. I didn't feel like at the time that was an option for me. So, like I said, it it thrills me to see that that can happen now more safely um, and productively for young people. Does that mean because you couldn't be yourself openly, you were kind of, you were really itching to get out of Fredericton then, to go to a place where you could be the Anthony Hello that you know you are? That's exactly right. And I... I thought that from a young age, I knew it from a young age. I knew that there wouldn't be a community for me there. I think when I was in elementary school, there was one gay bar that had opened up and I believe there was a bashing or or a a conflict um, of some sort that happened there. And then that nightlife went dark for many years and as if I needed any other validators for why I didn't feel like I could belong there. Um, That certainly was one. And like I said, it was just, it just was a different world, not that long ago. And I think often about how my life would be different if I felt like growing up in Atlantic Canada in the early eighties, I didn't have that fear, I guess is what you would call it. Um, but really, you know, it was just a realistic approach to the way that the world was at the time, which was not very accepting. And also, of course, you know, the bright lights of the big city um, did dazzle me even then. So that in and of itself, I'm sure, um, inspired me to consider either Toronto or Montreal or Ottawa. Ah, uh, there we go. The connection to Ottawa again. <laughs> there you go. Well, <laughs> see, right New up, Brunswick, please. New Brunswick, the only officially bilingual province. So most folks in New Brunswick do speak English and French, and therefore that opens up a federal uh, government, you know, 
a career opportunity essentially for them, um, which is why I think uh, a lot of New Brunswickers do end up in Ottawa. Are you bilingual? Yes, I do speak English and French, although my French is rusty, so don't quiz me. No, 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 I'm not going to quiz you on it. I wouldn't know how to quiz you, but it's funny because that's what I say when I get a chance to speak at colleges. People will be like, what's one skill do you think you have? And I said, God, I wish I'd stuck with French. And you yes. can see some people smile because they know they know there are going to be these unique opportunities that only they can apply for. And then you see a couple of other people that have regrets and a little bit of them die inside when they're just like, oh, grade nine French was it for me. Because that's in Ontario, that's, that's what true. it was. It's like you get past grade nine French, you never have to touch it again. And it's not till you get into like college or university that you're just like, oh, there really is a market for French, a very narrow well, market that people are willing to pay for. Absolutely. And of course, it's such a beautiful language. And you can take that so many places in the world, including to uh, Lebanon recently. Yeah, I'm, I'm part Lebanese and I recently went to Lebanon and um, went to our town where my ancestors are from. And, you know, folks there speak French. And so that in and of itself was such an incredible opportunity for me to be able to communicate with folks because I don't speak Arabic. And in New Brunswick, we had French from grade one. I was I almost said first grade because I live in the U.S. now and we don't say grade one here. We say first grade. Uh, but I had French from grade one uh, right through to grade 12. And then when I got to UNB, Fredericton, which is where I went to university, um, I had to pick a second language, couldn't pick French because I was fluent. So I picked Spanish. And at the time, I didn't realize I would end up living in the U.S. So, you know, I did my homework and I did well in the courses, but I didn't focus on retaining a lot of it. And I sure wish I had now. It would be a big help in the United States. It would be a big help in the United States. Yes. Okay, I ask everyone what their interests or hobbies were growing up, and I'd have to say you gave me one of the most unique answers that I'm looking at diving into, and that is you loved reading the CD liner notes. <laughs> yes, I loved reading the liner notes of of you know albums of, of CDs, records, cassettes, um, whatever I could get my hands on. I was obsessed with the world of entertainment and with entertainers. And growing up in Fredericton, so far removed from any of that industry, it seemed magical to me in the way that the Disney or the Marvel universes feel magical to other kids. I just imagined this cadre of creative people, musicians and photographers and makeup artists and, and you know, costume designers and executives and folks coming together to create this art that I would go and, you know, buy at the Walmart in, in Fredericton when it opened up. And for me, reading these people's names, hearing about them, learning about their expertise gave me a kind of hope or excitement about what my own future could lead to, even though at the time I didn't think I had any sort of talent that would place me within the industry outside of potentially working as a quote unquote suit as an executive. Um, so I also, the other geeky thing that I read when I was a kid is this book by Don Passman, a, a longtime entertainment lawyer. I'm going to butcher the exact name of his book. It's something like, you know, um, how to succeed in the music business or, or understanding the music business. And I went deep on things like record royalties and, you know, uh, record contracts and publishing contracts. I just was obsessed with this world of entertainment 
not just for the entertaining aspect of it, but also for the business side of it, because I figured that maybe that might be somewhere that I would eventually end up. Okay. So what do you do about CD liners now, given that we're in kind of a CD less world? It's funny. I recently have begun exploring my own creativity, which for many, many years I funneled into my day job work in advertising. But once COVID hit and the work slowed down and I wasn't able to input into creative decision-making as intensely as I had before, it created a, a void for me that I, that I wanted to fill and I felt compelled to fill. So I started to explore um, musicality and songwriting and I put out an EP um, under the artist project name 23A, 23A, just recently. And it was funny for me because I thought, I don't, what would I write in the liner notes if I, if I got the chance to? And so I thought, well, I guess now that's just like an Instagram post, basically thanking the people who contributed to the project. Um, but oddly, vinyl has had this resurgence and, and, and people often will get me vinyl. I'm a huge Madonna fan. And so I, I, an easy gift for me is always any sort of archival or new vinyl of hers. And I will go and look to see if they still you know, take the time to write the liner notes and, and some do, but it's a lost in some ways, um, medium. It's funny. Cause it has become a bit of a commodity. It seems a lot more disposable. Like you said, cause if you look at take Madonna, for instance, I imagine in vinyl, it was at least two or three records, but the immaculate collection, like, mm. like you're never going to see anything like that now. And if you do, it's a very limited run and collectors are going to scoop it up first and try to flip it on eBay. But I remember those and I remember how, how proud you were to have something like that. Like for me, I, I want to say it was probably the smashing pumpkins, melancholy and the infinite sadness. It was like the first double CD album I ever had. And I think it's probably the only double CD album I've ever had, but something special like that. You just don't see that anymore. All of a sudden you wake up and there's an Instagram post, like you said, from Taylor Swift going, oops, I just dropped 12 new songs. And it just Absolutely. doesn't seem to have that magic. It doesn't seem to have the magic anymore. First of all, great album, uh, Melancholy. I also had the double CD, also stellar liner notes. And it's funny you mentioned Immaculate Collection. Of course, I had that in multiple formats, including the cassette, which was, I think, the first transparent cassette I ever had. Like, it was, you know, it was in the clear plastic. Oh, I, remember, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, those, those little <laughs> things meant a lot to us. You're like, I can see what's going on inside, even though it's, again, just a cassette. Nothing different about it. Absolutely. And it was a nice surprise when you, when you bought something, you, you know, you wondered like in, in the CDR was another example of that. Was it going to be just like the silver CD with printing on it? Or was there going to be any sort of art on it? Yes. But even from a, from a business perspective, what fascinates me is that can you imagine the money that used to be made on greatest hits album? Uh, on greatest <laughs> yes, hits album, I point. should say, you know, people, you know, I think the Immaculate Collection is like diamond in the U S like 10 million copies, which was essentially just a, literally a collection of other songs that have been previously released with a couple of new ones. And then you sell gargantuan amounts of these records, make a fortune. And that just completely disappeared with the, um, you know, the transfer to digital. I mean, every artist's quote unquote essentials playlist is, is, <laughs> is a greatest hits and they're not getting any more money for it. Oh, not just that, but also you think back to like what, uh, 
God, was it called Polygram Records or like Much Music used to put out, like Much Dance or Big Shiny Tunes? Like they would just get other people's hits and put them together. And it's just like, okay, give it a second window. And they were raking it in for a number of years. Absolutely. And I will also say that those compilation type products also were a promotional vehicle for these artists, right? So that was a way where if you knew, you know, eight of the songs, on the CD, but you didn't know two of them, you might discover a new artist that way. And, and, you know, that's another channel that sort of doesn't exist in the same way anymore for artists, or at least has been replaced by um, the algorithm or playlist curators. Um, but it's, uh, you know, much dance 97. I don't know. I would say when it was extend a mix much much dance 92 i had that on cassette it was the the cover yes two unlimited was on that one remember them limited (laughs) yep oh we're going back okay so this next question it makes total sense based on what we just discussed about i ask all of my guests who their influences were growing up and a lot of people will throw to a family member but you've really leaned in on some pop culture icons so who were your influences growing up my influences were stars specifically madonna also george michael and you know we talk about the, the more accepting world that we live in specifically for queer people i mean when i was four years old elton john married a woman and george michael didn't come out until i was 18 or 19 and so i didn't have any queer role models in the realm that most excited me, which was entertainment. And so I'm so thrilled now that that obviously has, has completely changed um, and flipped on its head. And there are so many out queer role models who are singers, songwriters, actors, dancers, etc. But it was, it was hard because I really, I didn't see that. Now, luckily I did have, a few family members who were older, who were gay, who were out, um, who would come to Fredericton for the holidays. And so I would get to at least have some sort of window into what their adult life looked like and um, how exciting it was. I remember I had two older cousins and one Christmas um, they were like sewing like bathing suits or something because they were going to South Beach for New Year's. And as like a, like a 10 year old in Fredericton, I just thought that was like the most exciting thing I had ever heard. Um, but yeah, I mean, I essentially knew that my way out of what I felt like was an unwelcoming environment was excellence. And so I looked up to anybody who demonstrated excellence in their chosen field, predominantly entertainers, um, but really across the board. Okay. So how do Angela Bauer and Darren Stevens factor into this? <laughs> Angela Bauer and Darren Stevens. I love that, that you brought them up. Both of those television characters, for those who don't know, Angela Bauer was on who's the boss, uh, the Tony Danza, uh, and Judith light show. And Darren Stevens was of course, um, the husband on Bewitched, famously played by two different actors, Team First Darren. Those two characters, and my mom, but I'll explain that in a second, are the reason why I went into advertising. And it goes to the power of media to inspire young people. Again, growing up in Fredericton, I mean, there was no, there weren't advertising agencies in town. There were not um, 
opportunities to have a career in advertising and, and live in that environment, certainly. But I saw Angela Bauer uh, on Who's the Boss um, and Darren Stevens on Bewitched in these exciting, creative, you know, business-minded careers in advertising. They were respected. People valued their opinion and their input. They were gregarious and dynamic. And for the first time, I thought, oh, I think I could do that. I think I could, whatever it is that they're doing in these meetings, creating these ideas as quickly as they can and putting them in the context of, of solving a problem for a client, I thought, hmm, I could do that. And with Angela Bauer, I watched Who's the, Who's the Boss growing up as well. She really kind of set the tone for what one would think advertising was like when we got into it, where it was all storyboards and big brand meetings and things like that. And I remember she had a Jaguar because there was a whole episode about where Tony had it painted red instead of beige. And he had to like work. He had to like work. She was docking it from his pay to paint it back beige. Oh but like those kind of shows really, really kind of did set the tone for what we would expect advertising to be like. Granted, I found when I got into advertising, it was way more spreadsheets than it was storyboards. But you kind of get that sort of creative aspect from it. It's true. My first few years in the business, there were a few meetings I found myself in where boards lined the room. But but mostly it was it was spreadsheets. And but I just always found it interesting and exciting. You know, you would see them both Darren and Angela, the characters carrying around, you know, their wares, like carrying around their giant portfolios of boards with their advertising concepts. And those struck me almost like a like a musician carries around an instrument case. You know, it was it was it was more than just their work product. It was it was something that they they held very closely and something that made them proud that I just thought, hmm. you know, I knew I was never going to be somebody who was building buildings or, um, you know, creating beautiful landscape or, or really doing anything with my hands. And so the idea of, of seeing them sort of walk around and, and present their ideas in this this visual format, it made me feel like, okay, there's a vocation that I can run towards. And you sort of did run to it early on. I count this as your first job in media. Anyone who delivered papers, that's technically <laughs> your first media job as far as I'm concerned. So you started off as a paper boy at age nine, and what were you delivering? I took over my brother's paper route when I was nine, and I delivered the Daily Gleaner in Fredericton, New Brunswick. It's still the local paper. Although, shout out to the plight of local media, which, by the way, in the U.S., even I hear rumblings of strange things happening with respect to local media in Canada, so maybe you can fill me in on that, something to do with Meta. But, you know, I yeah, I delivered the Daily Gleaner. I, thank goodness, you know, had a Walkman, and so I would pop my Immaculate Collection, you know, transparent or, or translucent <laughs> cassette into my Walkman, and I would deliver my 30 or so papers every day. Um, and yeah, that's that's how I started, you know, making my first bit of money. Um, also, a first introduction into advertising, um, because, you know, the more of it there was, the heavier my bag was for that mm -hmm. day. Okay, so to fill you in on what's going on with local news here, 
the government of Canada pushed a bill through a couple of months ago, and the bill was going to require, it's a very ambiguous bill, very similar to what they did in Australia, but not quite as refined. And uh, with that bill, it was going to force large tech companies that benefit from uh, Canadian advert or not Canadian advertising, but Canadian journalism, it was going to force them to pay a fee. And so what happened was Meta put their hand up and said, you know what, if we're going to have to pay because you think we're benefiting, even though it's a massive traffic driver, organic or otherwise, we're just going to cut out uh, Canadian news altogether. And so now if you're in Canada and try it the next time you're up here, go into Instagram and say, go to CBC and you will be blocked from seeing it. You will actually get a notification explaining why you cannot see CBC's Instagram page or their Facebook page or anything like that. And I believe the block goes as far as even if you is just like a Canadian on Facebook links back to a CBC page that still gets blocked. So they've totally put a ban on news. However, if you're in the, if you're in the United States and you look up CBC on your Instagram or look up CBC's Instagram, I should say, you're going to be able to see it. And what happened was Google was holding out for a bit because they were getting close. They had set a deadline for December to block Canadian news from news searches or searches altogether. And then they came to an agreement. It was announced either last week or the week before where they're going to contribute $100 million to journalism. How that's going to be distributed is beyond me. But it's it's been a very messy bill up here. It's, I mean, the government says that it's going to help local news, but local news says it's not going to help them. So I, I tend to side with local news because they know their business model better than some politicians. Wow. That is something. Yeah, it's 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 crazy. And what really what really bugs people about this is that it's up to the government to decide which social media or which tech companies are captured under this. Because as of right now, it's just Meta and Google, but like Pinterest gets a pass, X is getting a pass currently. And and that's why it's very arbitrary. So that's that's something you just want to stay tuned to. What a what a conundrum. You know, I in the last few years I have um begun producing short films um and other forms of entertainment that deal with LGBTQ plus history. And I use um online services that you know have databases of local news reporting, you know, since the dawn of time. And those sources are invaluable because they're the closest reports that we have of you know any sort of like societal change happening in real time from people written on the front lines. And wow, I I hope that whatever happens with this bill or this legislation or this it's a conundrum that look that they do somehow figure out a way to continue funding local specifically local news media um i i've seen even you know when i go home and my parents have the paper that i used to deliver the daily gleaner on the, you know on the table in the kitchen and i'll pick it up and read it and i do notice that a lot of the stories seem to be sort of you know licensed stories that are you know appear in in other papers and there is some local reporting but certainly not as much as there used to be and what a shame for both journalism and journalists if we lose the ability to codify what what happens in our communities on a daily basis for reasons like that i mean they're the only ones that are going to hold local politicians accountable 
Like everyone well, that, else well, is focused exactly on it. Ottawa and Toronto and the other big markets. But yeah, like you said, Fredericton could fly under the radar. That's exactly it. And it and it is typically like the smaller communities that, you know, that do suffer from that because there's just simply not as much uh, commercial demand for the content. But if we zoom out and look at the broader historical context, we need local reporting. So hopefully, you know, we all figure out a way to have it continue. You were itching to get out of New Brunswick, but you chose to stay local for university. So why did you pick the University of New Brunswick and why study business? I decided to go to UNB Fredericton for two reasons. First of all, because it is a great school, um, no question. And at one point I was considering going to law school and UNB famously has or at least had um, a, you know, a reputable, respected, prestigious law school. The second reason, of course, is that I lived in Fredericton and I could live at home and save a ton of money. I did not want to graduate university with student loan burden if I didn't have to. So I went to school at home. I worked consistently um, during, you know, during the academic year and in the summers, Um, you know, got a little bit of help from my family and some bursaries and scholarships and did graduate without student loan debt, which remains something that I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, you know, my husband, uh, was not able to go to college in his town. Uh, he went to the university of South Carolina and is still paying. And it's funny because Atlantic Canada, I know, and you and I are pretty much the same age and I know Atlantic Canada at the time was notorious for having some of the highest tuition rates, but I imagine he brought his probably his one or two year tuition rate was probably equivalent to what you paid for four years, if not even a little bit more. I would think so. If I remember correctly, my first year of tuition at UMB was in the $2,000 range. Canadian, of course. (laughs) Okay. So that was, wow. Okay. Maybe it was Nova Scotia because I, I started university at Brock university in September of 2001. And I remember hearing that Atlantic Canada, and usually they were just picking on, picking on Nova Scotia was was in like the five to $6,000 range. And I was at 4,200 and I was just very happy to be that. So you were basically paying what in province students were paying in Quebec because they've also got very low tuition rates that are like that. Yes, that that's correct. And I, I, I cherish that what I consider to be an advantage in my life, particularly when, um, you know, sneaking ahead a little bit, like when I came to the U.S. and began working here and speaking with my colleagues, hearing their, what again, what I consider to be horror stories about their student loans and, and what they had to pay to go to school created a, just a bastion of, of gratitude within me that I, that I did not have to do that. Okay. So after graduation, you said it took a four month search, but you got hired at Echo Advertising. So I guess this is your first break in the advertising industry. Am I, have I got that right? That's correct. So I graduated from UNB and had a, my business degree in marketing. I, you know, I, I again, um, I followed in the path in the footsteps of, of Angela Bauer and Darren Stevens, got my business degree in marketing. And, and by the way, I, you know, I mentioned my mom earlier having a role in that decision. I wasn't really sure what to do when I was graduating from high school and, and, you know, my mom said, well, you know, there's arts, there's science, and then business is kind of in the middle. And I thought, well, that sounds like me. So I did go to UNB, got my degree with a concentration in marketing, 
and uh, had an incredible offer from my uncle who lived in Toronto. He said, he said, come out here, uh, stay on my couch for a few weeks until you get a job (laughs) and, uh, you know, and then, and then I'll help you get, you know, set up. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks turned into four months, which now doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when you have, uh, like a 22 year old and a 50 year old, um, and both are gay men, you know, living in a one bedroom apartment, um, one of whom is on, is on the couch. Um, it can get a little crowded, a little fast. So, um, but, (laughs) but thankfully he let me hang out there until I got my job at echo and that, that first job delivered for me. It just, I woke up every morning excited to go to work there. I couldn't believe that I worked at an ad agency to this day. I'm in touch with most of the people, um, with whom I worked there. We had the best time work hard, play hard to the extreme, uh, collaborative, uh, beautiful culture. And it, you know, it, it became my training ground. I had an incredible, uh, manager there, well, a few incredible managers there who really trained me. And I, you know, I think often, um, we've lost a bit of that now. Um, this, this notion of, of really taking the time to spend time with your juniors and train them on the realities and intricacies of the business. I got that there. Uh, we worked on the Labatt account. Um, we did, uh, promotions for all of the Labatt brands and it was a blast. Did you realize going in how big it was to work on a beer company? Cause that's kind of like a dream client. Like they have got cash to spend and they're willing to do very creative things with it. At the time, I did not realize that, to be honest. I was not a beer drinker. You know, I was a young gay. Um, and uh, just the, the, the beer culture, uh, including hockey and you know, sport and just everything to do with beer and beer culture was not at all on my radar. So that part of it didn't excite me at all until I got the job and started working there and really understood that it's not about... Of course, for the work, it's about it's about the brand and it's about the culture and all of those elements. But for your career, it really doesn't matter what you're working on, provided you have a challenging assignment and a supportive team around you and, you know, clients um, who you can make happy. But at the same time, too, even though beer culture appeals to a lot of things that you're not interested in, did you find yourself throwing your did you find yourself getting into that stuff, at least learning about it? Because you're like, okay, this is important to our clientele. So it's got to be important to me. Like kind of the adventure of learning about what the consumer likes. Absolutely. My environment has always influenced me, um, you know, substantially. And as soon as I got the job there, I started drinking beer. (laughs) Um, I started drinking beer. At the time we had a promotion running called Blue Light Motel, which was Oh, I remember that. Yes, yes, yes. I worked on that. I worked on Kokanee, um, the the beer oh, brand God. that was there's, on the West there's Coast. There's a beer that, I, yeah, what was it oh, from Okanagan, <laughs> right? Um, uh, the Kootenays. I'm looking that up. I don't know. It's been a long time, but you know, no, I fully got into it. I fully, you know, became a beer drinker every um, long weekend. You know, uh, Labatt would give us the the coupon to go to the beer store and get a free two four. And, you know, I was broke. I was, I was young and, and I completely got into it. Um, 
you know, I would go to, obviously we would go to Labatt all the time to meetings at the office down on Queens Key and, and yeah, absolutely. I, I completely, I completely got into it. I immersed myself in the culture because I knew that it would be, that doing so would be essential to me succeeding at the work. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Compliment your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. Your departure, though, from Echo Advertising, kind of symbolic to what a lot of people, especially agency side of the business, have to face, whereas the client moved on to move their business elsewhere, and that usually means the team has to be disbanded. So how did you find your next role at The Hive? Well, you said it. I mean, it was, and and before I, I talk about The Hive, you know, I, rem- I remember the meeting um, when you know, they sat us down and we knew that it was a pitch and we knew that there was an op- there was a possibility that the business would be consolidated into you know, some other agency elsewhere or, or some other thing would happen. And I, I remember the meeting when uh, they told us that, you know, the decision hadn't gone our way. That was how it was. It was positioned to us. And. And in the room, you know, we all got the message like, hey, we're going to help you find other work, but, you know, this is it. And so that was a jarring experience for me certainly it was it was tough it was tough but i uh at the time i reached out to a recruiter or i believe a recruiter reached out to me actually um and was staffing a account supervisor position at the hive and i went in to meet with the team there the hive still you know still a flourishing agency from from what i can tell um, from the folks that I hear from and from social media. And what excited me about the role at the hive was that I would get to work on us business. What was so attractive about that? I just had always been obsessed with American culture and just the American influence on the world. Growing up in New Brunswick, we were like an hour or two drive away from the border. And, and so we would go to Maine quite often and we would go there for our summer vacations down to Old Orchard Beach. And so, you know, the U.S. was always on my mind. And I, I thought, well, what an interesting opportunity career wise to be able to influence marketing work, you know, in the States. And at the time, the Hive had the uh, American business for Brown Foreman, which is the um, the beverage conglomerate, um, they own Jack Daniels and that's the brand that I would be working on. And once again, I had never, you know, had whiskey before was not involved in any of the cultural temp poles that Jack Daniels supported, like NASCAR racing and, and, uh, you know, indie alternative music and so on, but fully immersed myself in that. And again, found myself in a company with the most intelligent, supportive, boisterous, joyful team you could imagine. Did bottles of beer switch to uh, shots of whiskey? They did. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be loyal to the, uh, they did, you got to be loyal to the customer. 
You certainly have to be loyal to the customer. However, I will also say that um, at the time, the Hive had quite famously uh, Miller Genuine Draft as a client. And uh, so I, 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 you know, I did sort of have a bridge strategy of enjoying the Miller Genuine Draft on my way to enjoying Jack Daniels. How did your role change from what you were doing at Echo? Because you were an account coordinator there and now you were an account supervisor. Rick Shaver, the one of the partners at the Hive, you know, he said to me when I joined, you will become more valuable here for what you know than what you do. You know, when you first start in the industry, it's all about accuracy, efficiency, you know, being the second, third, fourth set of eyes on something, ensuring quality control for the agency. And as you advance, then you begin to flex your strategic muscles. And so I found myself deeply involved in creating marketing activation programs for Jack Daniels in the United States, you know, from, from scratch, like from briefs from the client. And that was incredibly exciting. And also because Jack Daniels and music are so inextricably linked, I, I got to get a peek behind the curtain of the music industry, which as you know, had so um, fascinated me as a kid. Let's talk about your move to Mediacom, though, because this played a pivotal part of your career, but it almost didn't happen because when they approached you, you said no. And then I think they approached you again and you said no again. <laughs> it's true. You know, it's so funny to look back now and realize how much you didn't know at certain points in your career. I guess I knew tangentially that media agencies existed because you know, we would pass off assets um, for distribution um, to the media agency, but I never thought very much about what happened over there or how that process worked or that unique you know, set of deliverables for clients until I got a call, um, you know, from a recruiter who wanted me to go and meet uh, with um, a woman who would become my boss at, at Mediacom. And I said no, because I just, I didn't even know what he was talking about. I was like, what is a media agency? I don't even know what that is. I don't know what they do. I said, no, we called again. I said, no, again. And then I had booked a staycation in Toronto. I was just going to hang out um, for a week and he called again and said, you know, what are you doing? I said, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> and he said, okay, well, I mean, if you're going to be around, like the office is in Dundas square, like, can you just, I mean, just go for a half an hour. I really think that you will love, you know, this, this woman who's, who would potentially become your boss. And so I did. And of course he was right. I went, I got it immediately. When I walked into the offices, I, I completely understood the remit, the, the challenges, the opportunity specifically that working at uh, an agency that controlled such a huge portion of the advertiser's budget, you know, presented and completely fell in love um, with Misa Kim um, was her name um, and, and took that job at Mediacom and, and, and spent years there. Unfortunately, um, Misa got sick shortly after I joined the team and, and passed away, which became really one of the early or one of the first tragedies, I would say, in my adult life because of how I idolized her truly. You know what was interesting about what you said? They were headhunting you, they were approaching you, and you didn't even know what a media com was. 
it just goes to show how many people are really observing your work and you don't even know it. Like, it's like you're always on stage and always performing without even realizing it. That's true. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. And actually, I, I don't even know if I ever asked, like, how did you find me? Um, but, but there I found myself. And uh, I, I know that Misa had heard good things about me, but I, I even saved a couple of the emails that we exchanged very early on in that recruitment process. And, and she said to me in the email, this position will be a reach for you. I, she said, I don't, you're not there yet. Like you're not qualified for this position yet. It's, it will be difficult for you. There will be a steep learning curve, but I believe you can do it. And I mean, what are you going to say to that other than yes? Oh man, that's so crazy. They really want you. They keep chasing you. And then when it kind of comes to it and you guys meet, it's just like, well, here's some doubts, but we know you can do it. And it's just kind of like, wait, what? Absolutely. I mean, I remember her, I remember me like walking me to the elevator and being like, all right, like see you in two weeks, basically. And I was like, yeah, see you in two weeks. And that became the beginning of my career in media. And you served as an account director there, but then you also had the role of director of content. Let's speak about that one. What did that entail? At the time that I got hired at Mediacom, we were not yet using the word content. So I think my title was something like account director of promotional marketing. But we had such success with these media partnerships where we would literally pair our client's brand with the brand of, you know, a publisher like a CBC, for example, and leverage the media spend that we had with that partner to secure incremental rights and entitlements for our clients that were exciting and allowed us to do things like contests and trips and giveaways and um, ancillary content and so on. And we had such success doing that, that the Mediacom organization, you know, WPP at the time, looked at Canada as a model of what they could replicate in other markets. And they decided to really truly operationalize content within the media agency, which hadn't been done, uh, you know, as a specialist service per se, um, you know, until around this time. And so that's when my title changed to director of content. And we started using that word, which, as we now know, defines the industry. What brought you to Ben Simon Byrne and what did your role as the business lead there entail? One thing about media agencies and the media agency world is that it's cyclical from a business standpoint. At least in my observation, you are hot, 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 or you are not, not, not. Clients are coming in the door faster than you can service them or uh, leaving uh, faster than you can reassign people. And quite frankly, Mediacom went through a not, not, not period um, towards the end of my tenure there. And I began to look at opportunities where I could essentially learn more in more of a leadership role elsewhere. And so the opportunity to work at Ben Simon Byrne came along and I joined that organization and worked on Scotiabank uh, predominantly back in the hockey world. So again, it's so funny. So much of the work that I've done in my career has no intersection with my interests personally, but, you know, because I found myself surrounded again 
by folks at Ben Simon Byrne and at Scotiabank who were so delightful and passionate and impassioned that, you know, I fell in love with hockey and that culture and, and, you know, running hockey promotional campaigns for the bank. Let's talk about your move to New York, though, because we've got you growing up in Atlantic Canada. You relocate to Toronto and you're going you're going to New York for advertising. I mean, that is kind of like our Mecca, if we could look at it that way. So what brought you there? And specifically, tell us a little bit about the role you took up at UM Worldwide there. Sure. So while I was at the Hive, actually, if I, if I go back in time a little bit, back to 2005, picture it, I'm on a business trip in Columbia, South Carolina, of all places, <laughs> and, you know, Little gay boy from Fredericton finds himself in Columbia, South Carolina, hawking Jack Daniels. Uh, and I had, <laughs> <laughs> and it was as surprising to me as it is to you, believe me. And I, I had a night off. Um, we were literally doing bar promotion. So we had designed the entire promotional program in Canada. And then we came to the U.S. to actually, you know, oversee the execution of those. And I'm at a bar on my night off. And, you know, it was the only gay bar in town. And I had to go through a few layers of security to even get in the door. And it was early in the night. And I walk into the bar and this guy is bartending. And it was basically just just him at the bar and me walking in at like five o'clock or whatever it was. And I looked at that guy and I, I swear to God, I am not a woo-woo person, but I thought to myself, I'm going to marry that guy. And it it came through me like a bolt of lightning. And... I mean, spoiler alert, I married him, but okay. you know, at the, t- at the time, you know, it just, you know, we met, we, 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 we chatted, you know, we became friends. This was before Facebook, before social media. Uh, but once those came around, we ended up reconnecting on social media and, you know, fast forward to me working at Ben Simon Byrne and, um, Michael is his name. He messaged me and said, Hey, um, I'm a flight attendant now. I've, you know, I've, I can fly, you know, inexpensively on, on all these airlines. How about I come visit you in Canada? I've never been to Canada. And I said, sure. And that became, you know, the beginning of my relationship with my now husband. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time dating. And once we got engaged, we had to decide, are we going to live in Canada or are we going to live in the U.S.? And he was living in Boston at the time. And Boston does actually have a somewhat thriving advertising or marketing, um, industry. And I thought, okay, well, well, maybe we'll move to Boston. Um, but I had had a friend who I worked with, um, at media. Well, actually, while I was at Mediacom, he, he was at another one of the media agencies and we were always very competitive and he had since moved to New York and had gotten a job at, at Universal McCann at UM in their J3 business unit, which serviced Johnson and Johnson. And so he and I were talking and he said, he said, you know, if you're going to move to the U S uh, do you want me to see if I could, you know, put you in touch with people here who might have a job for you? And that was so big for me to consider that I would go to New York and, and work in advertising in New York, just like Angela Bauer and Darren Stevens. And so I said, of course, you know, Michael and I talked about it. He could transfer to New York with his airline. And so Trevor, my friend, put me in touch with the folks at UM got a job there and I left Ben Simon Byrne on a Friday with my luggage and went to the airport and moved to New York. Jesus. And the role you landed at UM Worldwide, you were SVP group director 
of content management. So what did that entail? I didn't start at that level. I started as a group director, which was a promotion um, from my uh, role that I had at Ben Simon Byrne. It was a, it was a level step up. And it was actually an incredibly similar situation to when I joined Mediacom, where the content practice was still nascent, still in its early stages at UM, um, but strongest on the Johnson & Johnson business. And so they had a ton of opportunity there. Um, the, piece, the, the piece of the business at the agency was growing. And so I started out working on medical device um, and over-the-counter brands for Johnson & Johnson, um, you know, creating content programs for them, similarly to how I had at Mediacom. And what a heady, exciting time that okay. was. And can I jump in on there for a second? Because sure. the advertising laws in Canada are very restrictive when it comes to the medical industry, but they're far more liberal in the United States. You can I don't want to say you can do whatever you want, but a hell of a lot more here. So you were kind of entering a space that otherwise, correct me if I'm wrong, you would not have had the opportunity to enter in Canada. That's possibly true. You know, when I started, I was working on uh, certainly regulated products, but not as regulated as what I would go on to work on uh, when I began uh, taking on projects for pharmaceutical brands specifically, both within gotcha, um, okay. the, the Johnson & Johnson portfolio and later um, on uh, the Gilead portfolio, um, you know, uh, which I worked on most recently. And certainly that industry is incredibly regulated. But again, one, you know, one of the last things that I worked on before I left uh, media brands was an, was an influencer strategy for a pharmaceutical brand. And, you know, what I observed in the creation of that was those regulations essentially slow you down and, you know, obviously present certain blockades, but yeah, I mean, you can do a lot. You can do a lot if you take the time to, you know, get all of the appropriate approvals, which, you know, which takes a long time. And um, I don't know. I look at those challenges as opportunities to demonstrate brilliance, not my own, but I'm just saying like in terms of like what you can actually accomplish with a marketing program. So I don't know, I, I thrive around, you know, within parameters. But it also really makes you a much more lucrative and valuable employee, because if you've got all that experience jumping through hoops for pharmaceutical brands, I mean, you want to be that person in the room. Like people are going to listen to you. They're going to turn and go, well, what does Anthony think? Anthony's done this before. Can we do this? Can we not do this? Like, I have to imagine that made you invaluable. Absolutely true. And listen, there were a few, there, there have been a few moments working on heavily regulated industry where I've thought, could we just sell M&Ms? I mean, like, this is really, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but, but yes, certainly um, operating within an Creating marketing for brands in heavy regulated industries is not for the faint of heart. It's fraught with you know all sorts of um, said challenges, but um, ultimately the most rewarding when you're able to actually put uh, a campaign into market that makes an impact, that succeeds, it does what it's supposed to do, and you think, wow, we were able to accomplish that. You know, I mean, we did a program, probably the program that I'm I'm most proud of would be a, a seven country marketing activation we did for AccuView brand contact lenses, which is a, uh, you know, obviously a, a brand of medical devices within the Johnson & Johnson portfolio. And 
if you think that trying to create programming for a brand in one country in a regulated industry is hard, try doing it in seven that all have absolutely completely um, different, you know, you know, rules and regulations. Some have more, some have fewer, um, some are more intense than others. But again, for me, that was not just an opportunity to see the world because I, d- I did get to, to do that and go to places like Japan and Korea and, and, you know, many other countries to, to actually see the work happen. But, you know, also to see what is possible when you have this dedicated team of people who just jump in, you know, this was a project that everyone who worked on it uh, joined it because the challenge excited them. Um, we took over, this is a true story. We took over a closet. I'm not even found myself back in the closet in New York, but we took over (laughs) a closet and, uh, and we, the eight of us, I think who worked on this seven country marketing program back in, I want to say 2018, 2019, we didn't even sit at our desks. We went in every morning. We sat at that, around that table in that closet and we built that program from nothing. And, you know, it was, what an incredible opportunity. That closet sounds like it was bigger than most people's homes. It was, it was a large closet um, adjacent to the cafeteria. So not only were you in a windowless room all day, but you could smell food the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. But, you know, but we got through it. And like I said, I, I got to discover Tokyo, one of my favorite cities uh, a couple of times. And uh, actually funny story. I was just in Tokyo again, a couple of weeks ago um, for completely different reasons. And a friend of ours who we were with picked a sushi place and said, okay, we're going to go to this place. I said, fine. We go to this place and I'm going up an escalator. And I thought I've been here before. And I looked in my photo album, you know, in my phone and the, the, like the optometrist office, you know, equivalent essentially that we had filmed at when we were in Tokyo was in the same building where we were getting sushi. I couldn't believe it, but, uh, yeah, I mean, these are the kinds of opportunities that working in this business have, have afforded me. How did your career change when you moved over to the Media Brands Content Studio? Media Brands Content Studio spun out of those individual content teams that were at the various agencies within the Media Brands umbrella. For those who aren't familiar with um, Media Brands, it's it's essentially the collective of media agencies within Interpublic Group, within that holding company. And my role didn't really change with respect to the work, um, when we spun out into media brands, one thing that was different though, and an incredibly COVID pandemic specific was that I was put over a region in which I didn't live, um, the Midwest region. And of course, nobody could travel, you know, at the time, you know, you know, to that region. So it was an interesting conundrum of how do I build a business in a region in which I don't live when I can't go there? And I've never met my team members, you know, other than on, on video. Um, so that in and of itself um, became an exciting challenge. But again, you know, my career in media has tracked against this growth, this exponential growth in content and content marketing. And, you know, Media Brands really has led the charge there through their their studios offering. And so I got to get a ton of exposure at, you know, conferences and events and um you know, just really be at the forefront of content marketing, which 
is now almost just becoming marketing when you think about you know how strong a role that everything from influencer to you know just any sort of short form content plays now in the mix i mean especially when you look at social if you want people to follow your brand on social media you've got to make it entertaining you've got to give them a little bit of value or otherwise i mean why would they follow you if you're just trying to sell fried food that's exactly right and now you know i found i find myself consulting with uh, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and we have many of the same conversations, regardless of who I'm talking to, about, well, how do I know what to post on social, right? Like, that's the question right now, right? Like, how do I know, how do I, how do I come up with my social strategy? And really what a lot of these entrepreneurs are asking is, what is my brand strategy? Um, you know, because they just, they haven't, they haven't done that. And that's why they look at social media with, question marks in their eyes because they just haven't done that brand work, which would guide them towards, you know, an appropriate social media strategy. And so I find it incredibly rewarding um, to work with them now and, and help them, you know, shore up the fundamentals of their brand or brands, and then, you know, take the step into activation and figuring out, okay, so like, what are the tentacles uh, of this that we're going to now go activate? Anthony, you mentioned that uh, you're consulting right now. If anyone listening to this wants to get in touch with you and talk about a potential partnership, how can they reach you? Absolutely. Please email me, anthony at anthello.com, A-N-T-H-E-L-L-O, anthony at anthello.com. You can email me. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok. I'm all, I'm all across the board. Uh, tens across the board. So find me wherever you look. And you're also a fellow podcaster. We touched on it early on, but let's jump into it a little bit more. Tell us about the All the Boys podcast. Where did the idea come from and where can people find it? Thank you for asking about this. I'm incredibly passionate about reclaiming LGBTQ plus history uh, and our future. And so I found myself in the pandemic giving my annual presentation our clients and colleagues um, at the agency about why we celebrate pride in June. Um, and that's to commemorate the anniversary of the Stonewall uprising um, in New York city when, you know, um, the queer community essentially fought back against the police oppression um, that they had, you know, suffered from for, for decades. Um, and I got off that presentation, you know, I clicked out of the, the video chat and I couldn't help, thinking what happened to these men who were like me, who, who were professionals who would go to work, you know, every day in Manhattan. And then at night they would go to a clandestine gay bar and it, the police would raid it. And then they would get put in the paddy wagon and they would, you know, they would go to the station and the newspapers would print their names and the reasons for their arrest the next day and their lives would be ruined. And I thought, well, like what, like what, then what, you know, then what happened? So I did some research and I found that, you know, this had happened to prominent men. Um, the first man that I discovered in my research was named Walter Jenkins. And Walter was what would now be considered uh, chief of staff, although that title didn't exist at the time, to the U.S. President Lyndon Johnson. And it's especially interesting because Walter was President Johnson's right-hand man and President Johnson didn't have a vice president. So Walter almost mm. played this sort of dual 
role um, and an unprecedented one. And he ended up getting arrested, you know, in a in a bathroom with another man, actually twice, but that's a longer story. And it's obviously a fascinating story. And so I thought, you know what? You know, this man lost his career. You know, he moved back to Texas with his wife and his six children, never to be heard from again. And I thought, I would like to hear from him again, or at least hear about him again. And I'm sure other people would too. So I got the idea to create this podcast called All the Boys, which reintroduces would-be queer luminaries whose you know, arrests on gay-related morals charges really made them infamous and, and defined their legacy. And I thought, let's redefine that. So in the, in the podcast, um, which you can find wherever you look for podcasts, uh, it's called All the Boys, um, I go into the history of Walter and all of the circumstances you know, surrounding his employment with and eventual um, separation from President Johnson, as well as uh, other prominent uh, political figures who had this happen to them as well, um, one of which was a, a man named uh, Congressman John Henson from Mississippi. Um, so there's a real, I learned a ton about things like voters' rights and you know uh, ballot access and so on doing that research, um, and others. So it's a, it's a quick listen. It's, uh, I believe it's eight episodes, um, three subjects, and um, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it. Anthony, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I'm ready. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. I said the AccuView uh, campaign earlier, but you know, since I'm since I'm talking to you and we're we're you know at least virtually in Canada here, I also loved the campaign um, that I worked on at MediaCom when we launched uh, a new product line for Maytag and partnered with um, CBC and CBC Hockey to do that. It got a ton of press coverage. We had a lot of fun with it. We brought the Maytag repairman up to Canada for it, created a bunch of content. And um, I just smile when I think about it. So I think, uh, yeah, Maytag and CBC. Your favorite movie? It's so hard to choose a favorite movie. And the stakes on answering this question have become even higher now that I make short films and, and write screenplays in my, in my, uh, in my spare time. But I watched a movie the other day called Stranger by the Lake. I think it's called Strangers by the Lake. Um, I believe it's a French film. It's subtitled. And it's an incredibly creepy, queer suspense film. So Strangers by the Lake, uh, I love. And then just for a recent favorite, uh, I just watched May, December on Netflix with uh, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman, the Todd Haynes film. And I, uh, I strongly recommend that one. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Well, I used to say Billy Zane because he's bald and I'm bald. We kind of have similar facial features. But now I would want to cast a queer actor. Um, I can't think of any that look like me, but um, I'll, just, I'll just aim high and say Jacob Elordi. Okay. So my follow-up to that, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? From New Brunswick to New York. Your favorite book? Memoirs of a Gay Show. Your favorite song? 
Vogue. And by the way, can I just say, I got to see Madonna uh, twice in a row in Brooklyn last week. She's 65 years old. I know people get on her case about that. But she says in her show, she says, the most controversial thing I've ever done is stick around. So please, when you're talking about Madonna, just check your ageism. Just just check it. Just check it. Because she's killing it on a sold-out world tour. And I really think that that the attacks on someone's age like that come from a place of fear. Like, maybe, am I going to be that cool when I'm 65? I don't know. So um, anyway, yes, she did Vogue and it was great. Not even that cool, but that healthy. Because it's not, like she, it's not like she just stands on stage in front of a microphone, like, and no disrespect to Celine Dion, because I know she's got some health issues, but she's, she's choreographed. Like that is, that, that show is a full on production. Like it's, it's a full on production. And, and this is what, you know, my husband, I, I drag him to these shows and he has no interest in coming, but every time we leave a Madonna concert, he always remarks upon the production specific her, of course, because she always surprises non-fans but the production it is the highest level of production that you can see in an arena show that's why that's one of the reasons why the tickets are so expensive because we have you have to pay for all of this incredible production value that you're seeing at one point she had you know three boxing rings throughout the arena and the ropes were like but the ropes were lasers and i mean the whole thing is is incredible and i know she's she's coming to canada soon so um definitely uh get to that show and uh and you know you know go go easy on our aging icons there aren't that many of them left okay so let me ask you quickly about the concert madonna's gotten to this point where she's got more songs than there usually is time in a typical concert do you come away from it going, why did she leave that one out? Or did she leave any of your favorites out? I imagine she did Vogue. That's, I mean, it'd be an injustice if she didn't. Being a Madonna fan is always interesting because she is not an artist who, who sits around thinking about how can I make my fans happy? <laughs> she, she's an artist and, and she puts forward what she wants to put forward. So on past tours, the set list of her shows focused on the album that she was promoting this tour. The celebration tour is marketed as a greatest hits tour. So you think, well, she's going to look at her top 10, top 20 hits and put those into uh, a pleasing order. And that's going to be the show. But what she actually did was somehow figured out this collection of songs that were both commercially successful and also not commercially successful, but fan favorites, and combine those into the most satisfying set list. I cannot even tell you that I could have imagined. But when you've been singing for 40 years and and you have 50 number one hits, by the way, she has 50 number one hits, you know, there are going to be songs that don't appear on that set list. So all we can hope is, get another tour at some point and uh, some more of those make it the best advice you have ever received work it like you own it that was given to me by uh by misa kim my boss at MediaCom, which is essentially another way of saying fake it till you make it but she didn't like the, the uh, connotation of fake it so she would say work it like you own it you're nervous you've got this go in give them everything you've got and if you don't have everything they need, follow up with it. 
My signature closing question, if you weren't in media and marketing, what would you be doing and why? If I wasn't in media and marketing, I would be probably a journalist. You know, we're in an age right now where misinformation, disinformation, dupes and fakes get a lot of attention. And truth matters and context matters. And so currently, I'm trying to deliver on that through my artistic endeavors. Um, but, uh, you know, if I needed to find another profession, it would probably be in reporting the facts and uh, maintaining information integrity. Anthony, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.